0: As I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. If I have to introduce this next person, Lori Gottlieb's book has just been everywhere. It's been translated into a bazillion different languages. She's a New York Times bestseller. Her book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And as a therapist, I think she really got therapy right. But you don't need to be a therapist to get a lot out of this book. because She's actually talking about herself. It's super groovy if you ever wanted to know what goes on inside of a therapist's office. I, I actually think my practice gets more calls because of her book. Um. It's actually been adapted, by the way, into a television series, just so you know. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes the Atlantic's Weekly Dear Therapist. There have been some great articles on that column. I highly recommend. She contributes regularly to the New York Times. Her recent TED Talk is one of the top 10 most watched of the year. And she's a member of the Advisory Council for Brain Changed Mind, which is Glenn Close's uh, mental health advocacy nonprofit. And she's the advisor to the Aspen Institute, which we're big fans of as well um as they do a lot of community connection types of projects and she's been all over the media she's been on the today show good morning america cbs all the good things and she's launching a podcast as well that actually it's already live um that i think is super groovy with guy wench so go check it out but we get her for ourselves today so i i like our sweet connected conversation i hope we were able to bring each other a little joy in this in this time of quarantine so Buckle in, have a good listen, and enjoy this conversation with Lori Gottlieb. So, Lori Gottlieb, I'm so excited to get to talk to you today, and I'm so proud of your book. And I'm going to tell you why. You were the very first person to me that has captured what actually happens in a therapist's office. So, how in the heck did this all happen from, (laughs) you know, Becoming so involved in the Hollywood scene to then going back to medical school to now being a therapist. Can you give us the high level on your journey to start with?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you said that um, about showing people what therapy really is and also what it isn't, because I think that more people would engage in the process of talking to someone, whether that's a therapist or whether that's somebody else. Um, You know, the book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to talk to a therapist. Um, but I think that the more educated people are about the process, the more interested they might become in terms of seeing what it can do for them. So in answer to your other question, this was not a book that I intended to write. And in this book, in kind of a meta way, I describe um, sort of how I arrived at this book. And just like that didn't happen as planned, becoming a therapist didn't happen as planned. So um when i graduated from college i was really interested in story and in telling stories and so i got involved in film development and later i moved over to nbc where when i got there the shows that were premiering that year were er and friends so it was a very good year for nbc it was the beginning of musty tv and um there was a consultant on ER who was an actual ER physician. And I spent some time in the emergency room with him, supposedly doing research, but but really I fell in love with being in the ER. And I think it had to do with the fact that it's one thing to tell fictional stories and ER told them very, very well, but it's another to witness people At inflection points in their lives because nobody goes into an ER because they expected something to happen. So I was very interested in in story and the human condition in that way. And at some point the consultant said to me that the ER physician said, you know, you might want to go to medical school. And I thought that was not possible because I was in my late 20s, um, I was a French major in college. I had been very mathy and sciencey, but I was also you know, very much about literature. Um, but I did. And I went up to Stanford. And when I got there, I had this idea of being the family physician who guides people through their lives, who's immersed in, again, story and the human condition. And at the time, the medical system was changing and really transitioning over to managed care. And a lot of people made it clear to me that that was going to be very hard to do in this new environment. And so I left medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I could help people to tell their stories. And after about 10 years of being a journalist, I'm still a journalist. I never I never left that career. Um, I had a baby. And one thing that happens, or at least happened for me <laughs> yeah. when I had a baby, was um, was that I really felt like I needed adults to talk to during the day. And the UPS guy would come with all the myriad deliveries that new parents need. And I would detain him in conversation <laughs> to the point that, that he would avoid me, kind of back away to his big brown truck. Or so it got to the point where he would tiptoe to my door and gently place the package down so I couldn't hear it. And then I wouldn't engage in a conversation. And I write about this in the book because we actually became very friendly later. And there's a very lovely story.
0: But One of my favorite stories in the book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, um, you know, we were both going through a transition, it turned out. But, uh, you know, so I called up the dean at at Stanford Medical School, um, who I had, I used to run her mother daughter book group. So I knew her quite well. And I said, um, you know, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, a lot of what psychiatry is, is medication management. And if you want to do the deep work that you're talking about, and you want to have those relationships with your patients, um, you, should do, you should go get a graduate degree in clinical psychology so that you can do that kind of deeper, longer term work. And it was both obvious and an aha moment at the same time, because um, it made perfect sense. And I, I just hadn't thought of it. And it was the best career advice that I'd ever gotten. And so that's exactly what I did. And so I feel like I went from being a journalist who helps people to tell their stories to a therapist where I help people to change those stories. I feel like a lot of what I do as a therapist uses my writing background to help people edit those faulty narratives that they come in with.
0: Mm. I love the way that you you say that that they edit their faulty narratives because
1: it doesn't put the blame
0: on the person. It sort of shares that hey, look, you've just got this this narrative that maybe isn't working for you anymore.
1: What do you well? Right i Uh, i I did a I I recently did a TED talk about that and how (laughs) changing our stories can really significantly change our lives. Um, You know, and I think that once we realize that we're all unreliable narrators mm-hmm. and and that we and that we realize it doesn't mean that we're purposely misleading it means that sometimes the lens through which we view our lives or a situation can be very narrow and we don't consider what another version of that story might look like
0: what I love about how you say this, though, I think when I've heard other therapists talk about this stuff, there's something very precious about the way that you they they talk about it, and you just make it so accessible. Is it because you want to champion folks going to therapy? Do you think that that's the hope of 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 this book in the end?
1: You know, I think that the hope is that it illuminates something about the human condition for the reader and makes people feel less alone in their struggles. I mean, that's the reason that I included myself in the book. So the book follows four seemingly different patients as they go through their various struggles. And then I added the fifth patient in the book, which is of course me, as I go through something in my own life and I seek out therapy. So there's me as clinician and me as patient. And I thought it was really important to include myself because I say at the beginning of the book that, I feel like my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, and so I didn't want to be the expert up on high because what I'm trying to say in the book is that we're all more the same than we are different. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, in the therapy room, when I am working as the clinician, um, you know, I'm using my humanity. I don't talk about myself in the room. I, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not doing my own therapy in that room, and I'm not sharing things about myself necessarily in the room. But I'm. Absolutely, bringing my full hum- my full humanity into the room, and um, and in order to do that, you have to be able to put yourself. Uh, you know, there's sort of a leveling that goes on. You can't mm. feel like you are um, on a different plane than your patients. Mm. God, I'm
0: so behind you on that. There's something about a power differential that can really stifle people from fully deepening into their story, so that you could even begin to craft a different version of it and i love that you highlight that and i think some people get off in the therapy room on being in that position of power what do you think is unique to how you were trained compared to i mean i'm not trying to get into theory wars but what is it that you had to develop to to get to this frame of reference this is look i'm human like you i have some training i have some skill i have some knowledge but it's my humanity that i bring that ultimately is where the change is happening
1: Well, one thing that I found interesting was going to grad school um, after I had had these other careers, because Mm -hmm. I think that you learn a lot about yourself and your place in the world by being out in the world. Um, And there were certainly people in grad school who went straight from undergrad to grad school, and they were really talented and really smart and really compassionate. Um, But I think that they, they didn't really have the perspective of of being out in the world yet. So I think that when people tried to kind of act like a therapist <laughs> and that could, that could look differently, but I think we've all seen it on TV, right? Um, you know, what, what the kind of image of the therapist is, I think that they're not really making contact with the people that they're seeing. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, there's a performative aspect, I think, to it that doesn't feel authentic. And it, it took a while for me to feel comfortable in the room and be able to be professional and a clinician, but also be human and be myself. And what does that look like? And I think you have to you have to practice for a while to kind of find that balance. And one of the things that happened for me, as you can see in the book, was that when I went to Wendell, my therapist, um, he so I was a very new therapist when I went to see him. So the book takes place when I'm just starting out. and I'm a relatively new therapist, and he is a much more seasoned therapist. And what struck me was how he brought his whole personality into the room. And I don't mean that he was crossing boundaries or being inappropriate in any way. I mean that he was just him. And I found that so refreshing. I found it so much easier to be vulnerable, to open up, to trust um, in that context. And so I tried to bring that, not, not him and his personality, but me and my personality into the therapy room. I'd leave his therapy room and then drive to my office and then go see patients. And it was so helpful for me to kind of hold on to that way of being as I you know, parked my car, got in the elevator, and went up into my own office after seeing him.
0: Wow. Yeah, I totally get that. And I also, you know, I'm going to join with you a little bit. I keep thinking about my most recent therapist because I've spent years on the couch. And I also find that therapists like Wendell don't have to be as interventive when they're so solidly themselves. They don't have to use all these interventions because their presence seems to do the thing. Did you feel that way with him? Because when I was reading, like the when he... Kicked your foot in that moment, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or even the ways that he would tap his thighs that you talked about, and the time that didn't he sing you a song at one point? I think I remember a section. (laughs) Yes. And there's something about that. That's not interventive Like where is that taught in graduate school? But I can imagine what I'm hearing you say is that his his fullness of his beingness sort of made space for the fullness of
1: yours. Well, that's right. And and I think that what he was doing was strategic. So, you know, it wasn't like he was just doing whatever he felt like doing without reflecting on it first. I think there's that balance of being really strategic and intentional about what you're doing in the room, but doing it with the context of who you actually are. So that it's very it comes from this place of authenticity. So that, um, you know, when he does sing, when we have these moments, you know, the first day when he threw me the tissue box. Right. Um, You know, he did that for a reason. And it was to illustrate how far away I was sitting from him. Uh Part of it was his compassion for the fact that I was crying hysterically. But (laughs) but the other part of it um, was that it made a point that later I realized what the point was. Right. Because that became sort of an issue in our therapy was the way his office was designed and where I chose to sit and what that said about my current struggle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also appreciated that you humanize therapists and I'm curious what the fallout has been, or maybe it's been great, but how has that been? Because you're still a very active practicing therapist and yet you tell so much about your life in this book. How's that been for you in your clinical work?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we're um, the book is being made into a television series with Eva Longoria. And um, one thing that's really important to me is that therapists are that it's a show about people who happen to be therapists and not a show about therapists. And that distinction might seem like I'm, you know, (laughs) like a very minute one, but to me, it's a, it's a big difference because I feel like it's about people and then it happens to take place in this milieu. And so I think that when people read about me, um, you know, there's this, this almost strange idea that, your therapist, you want your therapist to be human, but you don't want to see their humanity. So, I write about in the book that um, a colleague of mine, she and her husband were trying to have a baby and they were having trouble. And she finally got pregnant. She was standing in a Starbucks when the, her physician called and said that the pregnancy wasn't viable. And she burst into tears in Starbucks. And I, one of her patients happened to walk in and saw her crying from across the store and um, left. The store, and then never came back, like ghosted her. Never came back for therapy, and so I think it's it's this uh, like weirdness around, you know, we don't want to see our therapists as human, but we very much want them to be human. So with this book, um, you know, I I do reveal a lot about myself. I I don't talk about any of this in the therapy room, obviously, and so then there's that question of what happens if one of my patients happens to read this book, and the irony of this is that as I talk about in the book, I wasn't supposed to be writing this book. I was supposed to be writing, first there was like the parenting book and then there was a happiness book and neither of which (laughs) I wanted to write. And so I ended up writing this book and everyone said, no one's going to read this book. No one's going to read this book. Really? And so, oh yeah, because they were like, that's ridiculous. Who wants to, to, because they thought it was a book about therapy as opposed to a book about all of us, a book about the human condition. And so then I turned in the book and and, you know, I just let it rip because I was like, OK, no one's going to read the book like three people will read it. So I turn it in and all of a sudden at my publisher, they are passing it around like candy. It's like everybody is like, oh, my God, I see myself in this. I learned so much about myself. I see my partner, my parent, my child, my my sibling, whatever in this. Um, and and they laughed and they were entertained and they were like, wow, we didn't know it could be like this. So I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe. 300 people will read this or maybe 3,000 people will read this. And I had this moment of, should I clean myself up? You know, like what if someone (laughs) I know reads this? (laughs) Because, you know, like I had the freedom, the luxury of like, no one's going to read this. I can write the book I want to write that I feel like is the book that has to get out there, even if it gets out there to just a few people. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, uh oh, you know, who's going to see this? But I didn't clean myself up. And now, you know, we're over a year out and it's still on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's like, I am so glad I didn't clean myself up because I think that the reason that so many people are reading it is because it's so raw and real and relatable. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not putting on a show. I'm not, you know, trying to portray myself in a, in a better light than I actually, you know, was at that time.
0: Well, you know what I thought of as I've been reading, reading the book, I'm like, oh man, you know, when somebody reveals so much about themselves. I'm like, God, now I feel like I'm Lori's friend. Like, now I want to go have dinner with her. And I'm like, now she's got like 5 million people feeling that way about her. <laughs> do you get stopped on the street? I mean, do people know who you
1: are? I have to imagine it's, it's it happens. Been, well, you know, I never imagined that would happen because you're a writer, right? So you're not, you're not someone where people, people are reading words on a page. But they're not actually, you know, seeing you like if you are yeah. an actor and they, you know, so they would, you're easily recognizable. Um I have been stopped in airports when I was at Bookdoor. Um, I have been stopped in, you know, and like anywhere I am. You know, people, it's really interesting. I, I'm so surprised that people recognize me. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting is that I'll be like, I'll be out somewhere, what, back in the days when we could be out somewhere around other humans. And, um, I see people reading my book and that is, is, you know, the most amazing feeling that you see them like absorbed in the book. And, and I just, you know, walk on by and they have no idea.
0: That's, I can't even imagine that must be such a trip. Do you feel proud? Do you feel proud at the, I mean, uh, forget about the success for a minute. Do you feel proud about the impact then that you're having on people that they're reading it like candy and that They feel connected to you, to your story, to
1: therapy, to themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that's most gratifying about this experience is that most people are writing to me and saying something like, you know, they saw themselves in this and they learned something about themselves in a new way. You know, I think it's one thing if someone says to you, even your therapist says to you, you know, you're like this or you do this. We don't use those words, but that's what we're trying to get across. And I think that the response, the sort of natural human response is often, no, I'm not. No, I don't. That's not me, right? Um, But I think that if you read about other people's stories and you see yourself doing what they do and getting stuck in the ways that they get stuck or being so resistant to changes that they know they need to make um, or, you know, kind of perseverating on something and not being able to move past it or having these relational difficulties that are so, you know, universal. um, And you say, oh my gosh, that's me, or I do that. That's a completely different way of of moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, you came to it on your own. Mm -hmm. And I think that the most, sometimes I think the most important truths are the ones that we discover on our own. So that's been really gratifying. And I think a lot of people, I get a lot of reader mail from people who say, I brought this to my therapist, Mm. because a lot of what I write about in the is the relationship between me and my patients too, and how important that is in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting because I think that a lot of people come to therapy and they think that it's almost like their relationships are what happens outside of the room. And this thing that goes on in the therapy room, that's not really a relationship. That's like this person you hire, you know, (laughs) to consult with you about your life. (laughs) And, um, and, and I think that yet, on a much more visceral level, they know that this relationship has become very important to them. Yeah. So, so people will, there's a scene in the book where I want, you know, a lot of people wonder like, am I boring my therapist? Does my therapist like me? What does my therapist think of me? And at one point I say to my own therapist, do you like me? And mm. it's this really beautiful moment we have and I write about it in the book. And so a lot of people have brought the book to their therapist and they'll say that something like, mm. you know, I read this book, And there's a scene in the book where she asks her therapist if the therapist likes her, but they won't directly ask their therapist. And so, so many therapists have written to me and said, this happened in my office. And I read your, this is how I came to your book because a client brought it in and they were talking about something that happened in the book. But really, they were trying to talk about their relationship with me. And it brought up these discussions that we haven't been able to have about the relationship in the room in a new way. So, that's really gratifying too, because I think so much of the work as therapy is saying, what is going on in this relationship between right. therapist and client as a microcosm for, you know, what can I learn about what I'm going to take out into the world? Yeah. Well,
0: what I learned in reading this book, Lori, is that you and I have a similar working style and probably a theoretical frame. I am going to get a little, a little nudge, nudgy and political and you can bow out. If you, but th- this relational therapy is, not, is increasingly less in vogue. Right. It's become more transactional and symptoms reduction based. Um, are you you know I see you as being kind of and this is a psycho term, but psychodynamic. Do you even subscribe to a particular school of thought or and what do you think about cause you talked a lot about managed care in in mm-hmm. the you know, in the hospital setting in the a medical field, managed care is influencing how therapy is done. And I'm curious what you think about that or how it impacts or makes you think about how you work. That's like 10 questions that I just clam- crammed in there, but I think you're a writer. So you'll distill my story and what I'm trying to ask.
1: <laughs> so I wrote this piece for the New York Times Magazine called What Brand Is Your Therapist? And it was- about, I remember. I remember, remember this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a cover story. And it, so it got a lot of attention because I think that it brought up these- Questions that you're asking about, you know, what is therapy and how does it work and what's effective, and I think that what I was writing about there was starting out as a new therapist and seeing a lot of people trying to do things like text therapy or you know whatever it is or you know sort of taking away the human element. In fact, I, I have a um, a piece uh, I have a piece in the New York Times from um, about a week ago um, about. What is like doing online therapy right now during the coronavirus. And I wrote another one uh, slightly different of, in the Washington Post this week about, about that too. And what, what I say in the book was that, you know, so many people want to do online therapy. And I say, you know, what a colleague said to me was that online therapy, screen to screen is like doing therapy with a condom on. And <laughs> I thought that was really funny, but also very apt, because I feel like you can't make contact in the same way through screen. And there's something, it's not just the, you know, what you're seeing. It's not just like the lip that's quivering or the eyes that are narrowing or the leg that's shaking. Um, it's that ineffable dimension of the, the vibe when you're sharing the same physical space, you know, uninterrupted time, face to face for 50 minutes straight, nothing pinging, ringing, vibrating, you know, the things that happen out in the world. Um, hearing the other person breathe, you see the same things in the room, and there's a there's an energy to the space that's held between you. And so, um, I feel like the work that we do is is not you can't it can't replace it with a lot of the the ways that people are trying to do what they call therapy. But what I wrote about this week was that since I've been doing online therapy during the coronavirus. I found a surprising intimacy to it, and that doesn't mean that I won't immediately go back to face-to-face therapy as soon as we can. What I mean is that there's almost—it's almost been um, both an illuminator and I think a leveler um, in the sense of we're we're all in our homes and we're seeing inside one another's home, and I'm learning so much about my patients. From like somebody had a cello in the back, like in the back of their screen all the time. And I said, oh, I've seen that cello. And they said, oh, yeah, I play like, you know, a lot every day. And I, like, I never knew that about that person. Right. And it, it ended up being a really important part of their lives. Or A lot of people, because they need to find privacy to have their therapy sessions, they're doing their sessions from the closet or a car or often the bathroom <laughs> where they're sitting on a toilet seat, right, with the lid down. And one person told me, he said, you know, being back here in the bathroom reminds me of my childhood where I would go to escape to the bathroom when my parents were arguing. And I come in here now when I don't want to talk about something when my wife is angry with me. I avoid her by coming in here. And so it brought up something that he had never brought up in the therapy room before just because of his location, because he happened to be doing his sessions from the bathroom. So, you know, and I think there's that leveling of like a great equalizer of we're all in our bedrooms. And for the first time, maybe ever, everybody is having a shared experience. We might react differently to this experience, but we're all having this shared experience. Um, And I think that the facades, you know, when we talked earlier about like what it means to be a therapist and how a therapist (laughs) acts, um, you know, at, at the at the beginning of the coronavirus, I was putting on my press blouses and I had like, you know, whatever I had on jeans on the bottom that nobody could see because of the screen. Um, you know, or yoga pants or something. Um <laughs> And, but I had, you know, I looked professional from the waist up and then I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like everyone knows I'm in my bedroom, you know, (laughs) like that's the, where I can have privacy too. Um, and so I just, you know, so I started wearing like, you you know, you saw me at the beginning of this right now. And I said, I'm going into like six hours straight of sessions right after this. You saw what I'm wearing. I'm wearing like, you know, a baggy sweater because it's comfortable and you know, who, why pretend? Um, yeah. And so I think those, those uh, you know, those facades that we, that we kind of walk around with, the masks that we have on, um, have all come down in this time. So for that, I'm grateful and I'm grateful that I'm able to see people remotely during this time when I think people need it the most. Mm-hmm. But nothing, in, in my opinion, can replace the, the work that we do face-to-face in the same room with another person.
0: Yeah. And I'm hearing how you're making adjustments and you're using... Even if it's shortcomings, some of these some of these elements in the therapy, the toilet memory, the cello. I mean, it's you can really use any hardship and make it therapeutic. It sounds like
1: well, right? And going back to the relationship, um, I, ha- I wrote this about this in the New York Times, where this this patient was sitting on another patient. A lot of them were sitting on the toilet. So this is <laughs> it's sort of like like as I said, somebody's got to analyze piece, that, Lori. <laughs> Right. Well people have
0: oh, no. comment
1: sections. Um, you know, the toilet has become the new couch. But this this um, you know, this woman was sitting on the toilet and she was her her mother was in a um in an assisted living facility and uh she you know there had been a case of COVID-19 in the facility. She was really worried that her mother was gonna get it. She was sobbing, she felt helpless, she lived in a different city. And, um, and she leaned back and the toilet flushed, like she accidentally flushed the toilet and <laughs> it was this hilarious moment, but I didn't feel like I could laugh because of what she was talking about, mm. but she laughed. And then I laughed because laughter is contagious. And she said to me at the end of the session, you know, everything you said to me today was really helpful, but you know, what was the most helpful was laughing with you. She said, it reminded me of the person that I had been before. The coronavirus. And it gave me hope for the future that we have ahead of us. And it also gave me permission to laugh, even during this really traumatic time. And so wow. I think that, you know, it's kind of the both and that I talk about yeah. a lot in therapy of holding that the joy can sit alongside the pain. And so I think that, you know, that, that obviously would never have happened if we were in the office together, right? I mean, I laugh a lot with my patients in the office, but I think that particular moment might have been very different in the office. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, speaking as somebody who also had a different career before I became a therapist, I'm curious how it's impacted your own life, listening to all of these stories and being so immersed in these other people's lives in a a way that would have been different if you had had continued writing stories, right? In the same way that you used to on on TV sets.
1: Yeah. I always find doing therapy really inspiring. I think that a lot of people imagine, and people say this to me a lot, like people who aren't therapists will say, you know, isn't it depressing listening to people's stories all day? You know, aren't you drained? How do you do it? Um, and I think, you know, there's a real element to that, which is obviously, you know, self-care is so important. And I don't mean giving, you know, paying lip service to self-care. But I mean, you know, making sure that we're doing what we need to do. I said to you right before our conversation today that I have six hours straight today, um, which is not the norm. Normally, I have breaks in between. And just because my week got very busy and I had to, like, move people um, to fit everybody in because they don't want people to miss appointments. Um I had to do it that way. And so I said to you, um, Oh, my phone is ringing in the background. Can you hear that? Cause I can turn it off.
0: It's, it's fine. It's kind of okay, fine.
1: Okay. It's, it's <laughs> kind of like we're
0: using it, right? Corona verite. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, um, Uh, Now I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah. So normally I, I would, you know, I wouldn't schedule things like that, but I said, you know, okay, I need to eat right before my session because I can't go that long without eating. So I think we really do need to take care of ourselves. But I also think that a lot of what I'm seeing is so inspiring because yes, people are talking about really difficult things, but what I'm also seeing is resilience and flexibility and adaptability and creativity and the ways in which, We may have lost so much of what makes us feel human, but we haven't lost it all by any stretch of the imagination. And so I'm seeing people at their best as I'm seeing them struggle, maybe, you know, at the most difficult time in many people's lives. So I see both and I find that really hopeful and inspiring. Um, And I think that's much more interesting to me than a lot of the conversations that are happening sort of, you know, I'm going to put quote marks around this out there, meaning, um, you know, a lot of people are are having the same conversation over and over, and it's very doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, um, I feel like there are, you know, we're experiencing something on a lot of different levels. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of notes in the song. And I think that in therapy, you can hear all the notes in a way that maybe sometimes out there we don't. Mm, that's a beautiful way to put it.
0: So in keeping you in mind, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we'll do our closing ritual. Are you cool with that? Sure. Awesome. So one thing, because we have so many listeners that listen on sidewalks, and about 20% of them, truth be told, are therapists, but 80% of them aren't, and this question comes up a lot. Well, what's the difference between listening skillfully and listening as a therapist? I know that's a huge question, but considering this book, I think you're the perfect person to kind of take that up. How would you sort of speak to a layperson that might be asking the two of us that question?
1: I think that's a fantastic question and a really relevant question because I feel like most people did not learn growing up how to listen well to one another. They also didn't learn to listen to themselves well, so you know, which, is a, which is a different um, conversation. And I think that's covered in the book. But, um, but I think one thing that I'm trying to show people in the book um, is how to listen. Because I feel like, um, you know, as a therapist, I say that I'm listening for the music under the lyrics, right? So the lyrics are what is the content of what this person is saying, but the music is what is the underlying struggle, pattern, emotional experience that this person is trying to communicate to me. And that can sometimes get lost if you only focus on the lyrics. So a lot of times when people, are trying to listen to someone, not therapists, but people out there trying to listen to someone that they care about. Um, they're they're listening to the lyrics and they're reacting to the lyrics. So while the person is talking, instead of actually listening, they're already coming up with their rebuttal. They're already coming up with what they're going to say next. They're already coming up with how they're going to fix the situation. Um, so they're in their head somewhere else, instead of being present with where that person is. And if you're present, with where that person is, that's when you're going to hear the music. And so hearing the music means that you have empathy for that person. You can put yourself in that person's shoes. And here's what's key, even if you disagree with them, or even if your experience is different from theirs, maybe is a better way of putting it. So you can say, I can imagine their experience, even though my experience is very different. And once people feel that, I see you, I hear you, I understand you, you don't have to agree, but I see you, I hear you, I understand you. That is the core of human connection, not just for the person who's being listened to, but for the person who is listening, because you will feel more connected to that person too. And you will feel more seen and heard and understood just by virtue of connecting with that person.
0: Word. Word, word, word. You understand why we do what we do. Hey, I've really loved getting to talk with you, but I'm going to take care of you now and we're going to do our closing ritual and you're going to go eat. Does that sound cool? (laughs) Yes. Fabulous. I'm going to get out of the way and I want you to imagine that there's 8,000 sidewalk talk listeners that sit on sidewalks listening to strangers about anything. You can either offer them a wish or words of wisdom as our closing.
1: Well, I think following up on what we were talking about, about listening, I'll talk a little bit about listening to ourselves and leave them with that, which is that when I ask people, when I go and I do uh, events and public speaking, and I say to people, show of hands, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your day, in the course of your life? And Most people will say something like, if I say, you know, is it your partner? Lots of hands go up. Is it your child? Lots of hands go up. Is it your best friend? Lots of hands go up. Is it your sibling? Lots of hands go up. Um, Is it um, a parent, right? Those are the people that we think we talk to most in the course of our lives. But actually, the person you talk to most is yourself. And often what we say to ourselves is not kind or true or helpful. And people don't believe this about themselves, by the way. People think, oh, I'm not like that, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I did this with a patient who was so sure that she didn't have this critical voice that was kind of just you know, on, like, on in the background like a bad radio station all the time. And so I told her, I want you to write down everything that you say to yourself over the course of a few days, and next week, we'll talk about it. Just write it down and bring it in. So she comes back the next week. And she starts to read this and she's like, I can't even read this. I am such a bully to myself. And it would be things that she didn't even realize she was doing. Like she would say like, "Um, oh, you made that mistake. You're so stupid. Right. And you would never say that to a friend, not because you're being nice, but because you actually don't believe that because that friend made that mistake that she is now globally stupid. Right. 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 Um, And so I think that we need to have more compassion for ourselves and really listen to how are we treating ourselves? How Mm. respectful are we of ourselves? Mm. I think that a lot of people are afraid to be compassionate with themselves because they feel like if they aren't compassionate, they won't hold themselves accountable. They feel like they have to self-flagellate to motivate themselves to (laughs) quote unquote improve or grow or change. But let me tell you something, self-flagellation might help you change in the short term, like it might bully you into like getting something done or doing something, right? But in the long term, it will fall flat. What helps you in the long term is self-compassion, because self-compassion actually keeps you accountable to yourself in a way that motivates you to change. So that's my message is kindness to oneself, listen to the voice, um, change the radio station. If you've got like a really, um, you know, unfortunate, monologue going on in the background and change to the kind radio station, change to the helpful radio station. We are going to do that.
0: And I am going to say thank you and then send you a bunch of good wishes and good energy for six sessions today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: All right, Lori, take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk Podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from, and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.